Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. So, sorry I missed Christmas before uh, it actually passed, but uh, Happy New Year. I hope you're looking forward to a good 2019. I'm excited for you as you're looking for a pastor, praying for you in that regard. So, um, I'm praying the Lord will just draw you to the right man and family that uh, is going to shepherd you and preach the word faithfully, and um, that God will just continue the good work that He started here uh, at Christ Fellowship. Well, if you have your Bibles, why don't you turn to the book of Psalms? We're going to talk about two of my favorite Psalms. Hopefully, I don't know, has anybody preached Psalm 2 this Advent season? Okay, so uh, I didn't ask before I I told Matt what I was going to be preaching. So Psalm 2, um, 1 and 2 actually. So what I wanted to do is introduce you to a little bit of perhaps uh, how to read the Psalms, but also uh, why these two Psalms are so important to our understanding, not only of the book of Psalms, but uh, especially the story of our Savior. Um, as you know, during the Advent season, you've probably been reading a lot from the New Testament and perhaps Old Testament referring to Christ. And uh, the book of Psalms uh, was just used by the New Testament writers to point to over and over and over again um, to the message about Christ, to preach the gospel. And so they proclaim the gospel oftentimes from the book of Psalms. And so it's very important for us to kind of understand what's going on here and understand how to read and, and why this is so important. But as way of introduction, uh, I don't know, some of you I don't know, but uh, many of you know that I have the privilege of teaching at Cedarville University and have, this is my fifth year uh, going there. Uh, And the motto for our school, what appears on our uh, seal and so forth, is that we exist for the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. For the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. So as a school, as a professor there, as an administrator and all that I do there, uh, all aspects of the school are intended to, in some sense, instill this into our students, to teach them the Word of God and ultimately the gospel, the testimony uh, that that Word speaks about Jesus Christ. And so our students, Lord willing, leave the, the university understanding um, how to read and understand the Word of God, but also what that means about the message, the testimony, the witness about who Jesus Christ is, who the Son is. But the, the goal ultimately then for, for me as a professor and, and so forth is to help my students grow and become more mature in their faith. But if the goal is the maturation of our students, both intellectually and spiritually, we, we certainly understand, though, that we as, a, as professors and administrators and all that happens at the university cannot cause our students to grow and become mature. We can give them the tools that they have. We can present the truth of the Word, uh, and we can help them, giving them the tools to understand it and perhaps assist them in learning how to apply it to their life. But ultimately, it's, it's God who is going to help them grow in their maturity and ultimately to become wise. You see, if our students are to grow and become mature and be wise, they ultimately must tread the, the same long path towards maturity that you and I do. In our pursuit of wisdom, we take one step after another, and we understand how to do that, but it's a lifetime pursuit of wisdom and maturity and growth in our faith. You see, according to the Bible, according to what Scripture teaches us, skill for living, wisdom, understanding, growing in our understanding of how to live wisely, does not just come from opening a theology book or listening to a sermon, as important as those things are. No, skill for godly living... Wisdom, a life lived with maturity, comes only when the heart of the individual, the heart of faith, believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, but is confronted with the Word of God about the King of Kings, 
See, growth and, and wisdom begins to become part of an individual's life when their heart that believes is confronted with this word about who their, their master is, about who their, their God is, particularly as it reveals to them the Son. And this is ultimately why I wanted, wanted to bring us to these two psalms this morning. is because Psalm 1 teaches us about the importance of the word and why meditating upon it is so vital for our growth towards maturity. But then ultimately, meditating and thinking and reading and, and memorizing and soaking in that word leads us to one place, namely to the message about the Son. And so these two psalms are like two sides of the same coin in that regard, that it extols to us the importance of the Word of God, but then it leads us in Psalm 2 to an embracing, a understanding of who the Son is, namely the King. And so these two Psalms seem to be intentionally placed here right at the beginning of the Psalter, the book of Psalms, in order to help us understand that that is the foundation upon which we build not only our lives, but also our understanding of the rest of the book. And Psalms is a book. I I don't know, Psalms pretty much has a, a dear place in most Christians' hearts because it's the place that we often go to find refuge and and to have that pick me up in the morning and do our quiet times, and we, we open it up and pick a psalm and, and go to it. But uh, ultimately, it's intended to be read as a book. And in some sense, it has an introduction here. These two psalms serve as the introduction to the book, or as, as Calvin and Jerome kind of both say it in different ways, these two psalms are like the gateway into the Psalter. Well, why is that the case? Well, notice Psalm 3 for just a second. Psalm 3, as you know, most a lot of the psalms have headings, have titles, and it's not the ones that your, the editors of your Bible put in there. But uh, like Psalm 3 says that this is a psalm of David. And if you go to Psalm 4, guess what? It's a psalm of David. And 5, a psalm of David. 6 is a psalm of David. And so there is this kind of pattern in the first part of the book of, of psalms that these are psalms that are written by, by David, by King David. But what's interesting and what is intriguing in these first two psalms is that neither of them have a title. They're not attributed here in the book of Psalms to David or to the pen of David. And so it's interesting that the first two psalms, in what ultimately becomes the book of David, in the first 42 psalms of the book, ultimately don't have a, have a, uh, have a title. That's interesting. That's, and if that's the case, I mean, you might say, well, that's just kind of a random fact. But if we look a little bit further... What we'll find is that these two psalms that are originally written in Hebrew, um, and I'll be reading out of the New American Standard, these two psalms have some, have some connections between them that in some way the poet here has, has brought them together and is inviting us to read them together. For example, look down at the... Uh, uh, well, let's just start in Psalm 1.1. It says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the the law or the Torah, the instruction of the Lord, of Yahweh. And in this Torah, in this law, he meditates day and night. So there is this kind of the basic understanding, and Psalm 1 is probably quite familiar to most of us. The basic teaching of Psalm 1 is the contrast between a life spent walking according to the counsel of the world 
over against that lived in delight of the law of the Lord, namely in a constant, consistent meditation upon the word of God. And he says the one who is going to be blessed is the one who avoids the counsel of the world and meditates day and night upon the counsel of the Lord, namely his Torah, his written scripture, what he has to say through what has been written. But it's this consistent meditation that becomes the path towards blessing. Well, interestingly enough, when you look at Psalm 2, look down at Psalm 2, verse 1. It kind of raises this question in regards to why are the the nations, why are the Gentiles, why are they all in an uproar? And why are the nations, the peoples, devising some type of vain thing? Well, interestingly enough, this idea of the nations being in an uproar and the people devising a vain thing uses the exact same word. So, in other words, you could say it this way. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples, why are they meditating upon something that is in vain? Why are they trying to devise a plan by meditating together and thinking together about how to overthrow the Lord, as we'll find out in chapter 2? They're, they're meditating on this idea of how can we take these, these, uh, these cords that are upon us because of God and cast them away from us? How can we overcome His sovereignty over us? And particularly, these are those who are kings. So it's interesting that Psalm 1 begins by this important by highlighting the importance of meditating upon the Word of God. And Psalm 2 is going to address this issue of how unbelievers and how those who are not of faith and those who are of the nations who are not submissive to God meditate about how to overthrow His sovereignty over them. So it's kind of an interesting contrast here between Psalm 1 and 2. But the the similarities keep going. Let's go back to Psalm 1. Look at verse 3. It says, he, that is the one who, who meditates day and night, which is ultimately saying this one, this is a scribe. This is one who, who reads and meditates and thinks about this law as his on, the ongoing pastime of his life. You see, the ideal, when it really comes down to it, is that you and I spend our lives just reading and rereading and med- meditating and thinking about the text that we have in front of us. Now, other things get in the way. I know that, right? Family, being a spouse, being a father, being a mother, having a job, those kind of things. But here the the ideal of where we find blessing is by just consistently being this one who meditates over and over and over and reads and reads and reads and reads and reads. And And he says that's the source of blessing. There is a there is a, a, an essential blessing to reading the Word of God that just simply comes in reading it, just, just over and over again. There is an inherent blessing that comes as a result of that. Not just because we will then act right and do the right things, but just simply there is an inherent blessing in simply reading the words that are penned by God Himself. But that's a side note. Verse 3, He, that is the one who does that, the one who meditates day and night on this word, will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, right? This one that's by streams of water that, that is consistently and constantly and always having that water uh, available and constantly and consistently taking it in, right? Yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And whatever he does, that is the one who meditates, he prospers. So here is this one who meditates consistently 
prospers accordingly as a result of taking in this word over and over and over again, like a tree that has been transplanted in place right by the waters. But he says in verse 4, the wicked are not like that. The wicked are not so. They are like chaff, which the, the wind drives away. It pushes it away. So this, this unnecessary stuff, this, as they throw up the grain, the, the, the wind drives away what is, what is not good. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. Why? Verse 6. Because the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Look at that verse 6 for just a second. Think about that. It says, here's why all this is important. It's because the, the way that the righteous one walks is known, is, is personal with the Lord, is, is intimate with Him, but... He says the way of the wicked, the path by which the wicked walk, will ultimately lead only to one result, and that is perishing. Well, why is that so important? Well, look at Psalm 2. Psalm 2, then, is going to, again, ask the nations who are meditating about how to overthrow the Lord and ultimately overthrow His King, in verse 2. They want to tear their, the fetters apart, according to verse 3. Um, by the time we get to the end of the psalm, the writer comes back around, verse 10, to a warning to those kings who are trying to overthrow the Lord and overthrow, overthrow his king. Verse 10, look at that. He says, Now therefore, O kings, show discernment, so respond with wisdom. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Verse 12, do homage to the sun, or it might say kiss the sun. We'll come back to that. Kiss the sun, that he not become angry, and you perish in what? In the way. Interestingly enough, here at the end of Psalm 2, we come back around to the theme of Psalm 1. That the choice for those who are meditating in vain against the Lord are then called to, to repent and submit and and kiss the sun and worship who that sun is, because ultimately, if they don't, that sun will pour out his wrath, and how will they, what will be the result? They will perish in the way. In the same way that Psalm 1 says in verse 6, the way of the wicked will what? It will perish. So here, the, we have a couple of connections here, multiple connections between Psalms 1 and 2 about meditating and meditating on the proper thing, but then also this warning about what it looks like and why it's so important to respond appropriately because there's this possibility of perishing in the way that, that one lives. And so all of these things come together to invite us as readers, to read Psalm 1 and 2 together and understand how they complement one another. And the kind of the, the climax of that is one other thing. And as I said earlier, these psalms are originally written in Hebrew. And Hebrew, unlike our English uh, poetry, functions differently. It, they, they have different poetic devices. So I don't know what you're learning in school about literature and so forth and reading poetry and you know, how we rhyme endings, endings of lines and so forth, or we have sonnets or haikus or those kind of things. Hebrew has its kind of own poetic system in the Hebrew language. And one of the ways they do this um, is by what's called an inclusio. I don't know. That, that, it doesn't matter what it, mean, what, it, what it is. But it's basically, you want to think about this as bookmarks, uh, bookends, bookends. 
Um, as you think about a bookend, that you have one thing on one end and one on the other, it's very common in Hebrew poetry to start with one idea, and then after you fill in all the guts of it, you come back to that same idea. So let me give you an example. Turn over to Psalm 8 for just a second. Inclusio. I don't know if you've ever heard the word before, but that's a $5 word for you, so you can get some. You can use that. Try to use that this week. Um, Psalm 8 is a good example of an inclusio, uh, where it starts off, O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And then it sh- basically shows why in relationship to the Son of Man. And so it's going to talk about what makes his name majestic in all the earth. And look what happens when you get down to the end. Verse 9, O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This happens all through the Psalter. Um, I mean, there are near the end of the book of Psalms, there is psalm after psalm after psalm that starts off with hallelujah and ends with hallelujah. So there's this kind of repetition at the beginning of a psalm over against the end of it. And so that's one, one way that, that the writers of the psalms worked their, their poetic magic on these, on these beautiful um, Hebrew poems. Now, why is that important for Psalms 1 and 2? Well, interestingly enough, if the writer is inviting us uh, and wanting us to read these two things together, it's interesting how Psalm 1 starts and Psalm 2 ends. Psalm 1 starts off by talking about the blessing that comes from avoiding, avoiding the counsel of the world and embracing the counsel of God as revealed in the Torah. How blessed is the man who does not walk. And then it goes on from there. But notice the ending of Psalm 2. It says, Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath will, may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. So what starts off in Psalm 1 with blessing, talking about meditation, and the difference between a way that, that leads towards blessing over against a way that perishes, is complemented by Psalm 2, which starts off by, by showing how the nations meditate and, and conspire against the Lord, and unless there's a repentance, there is a perishing that comes as a result of the way that they live, are invited at the end to then respond correctly and therefore receive blessing by taking refuge in the one that they've been, cho- that they've been encouraged to kiss or do homage to. So in other words, Psalm 1 and 2 give us this comprehensive picture of what the life of blessing looks like. So the life of blessing is characterized by two big ideas. One is prolonged exposure to the text of Psalm 1. And then blessing, as according to Psalm 2, is a proper response to the Son. So there is this, on the one hand, this, this promise, this blessing that comes as a result of simply reading the text, but that text always leads us to a proper recognition of who the Son is. And why do we get, where do we get that? Look at Psalm 2 again. It says, uh, we'll pick it up in verse 4. After verses 1 to 3, talk about how the nations are conspiring against the Lord and trying to overthrow His anointed, according to verse 2, His, his Messiah, that it uses the term anointed there. Verse 4, He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord scoffs at them, at the, uh, their inability to overtake uh, the Lord. Verse 5, Then He, that is the Lord Yahweh, will speak to them in His anger, 
and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. So the the solution that Yahweh has, that the Lord has, towards the futility of the nations conspiring against him, is by setting up a king, his king, on the throne of his kingdom. And in verse 7, this king begins to talk. Look at verse 7. He says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now that, if you don't, if you haven't already, you should mark and highlight and put circles around uh, and whatever you need to do to remember where that is. Because that becomes a hugely important passage for our understanding of who Jesus Christ was when he was born during, during the Advent season. Because when they begin to identify who this, this baby is and who this son is and why he is so important and why he lived his, his life and then died and was raised from the dead, and they're trying to understand who is he, what, who is this one, they come back to this verse. For example, if you go to Hebrews chapter 1, Hebrews 1 quotes this passage as the writer of Hebrews is trying to teach us who Jesus is as the Son of God, as he's speaking to uh, about his divinity and speaking towards his divinity. So this is a hugely important passage as the writers of the New Testament come back to on multiple occasions to help us understand who the Son is. So it's not that he was born that day, or that he is just now coming to existence, but that he exists and God places him on the throne as king. He was always son. He is placed on the throne as king. So he sets him um, up as his son, as his king. And so he says in verse 8, let's keep going. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. This king, this one who is son, is promised a kingdom that would go to the very ends of the earth, is given over to him as an inheritance by the Lord. And as a result of that, he has not only the privilege and prerogative, but the, uh, ultimately he will defeat his enemies. Which is why in verse 10, it then comes back around to those who in verses 1 to 3 are challenging the Lord, and they're, and the, they're encouraged to show discernment, be wise, respond correctly to this message by doing homage to this one who's called the Son. Which is why in verse, verse 12, they are called to do homage to the Son or to kiss the Son. They are to respond to this one who is, in verse 7, described as the Son, Today I have begotten you. So their, their, their response of worship, their response of rejoicing with trembling, as verse 11 talks about, is to have a proper understanding of who the Son is, to kiss Him, in other words, to bow down to Him and do homage to Him so that He not perish and destroy them. And then it says, and here's the conclusion of the, the whole matter, is that, That's where one finds blessing. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. And who is the Him? The Him is the Son. 
The, the hymn that's being encouraged to take refuge in is none other than the closest antecedent here, which is in verse 12, the, the one who is described as the Son. You see, when, when Jesus was born during the time of Advent, he did not just become, he, he did not become the Son at that particular point. He was already the Son of God. He was the second member of the Trinity, the Son, and he, he became human, but he never gave up being the Son. He didn't just automatically become the Son. He was all, already the Son, always the Son. And so the Old Testament is already talking about Him as this one who is the Son of God. This is an important passage, not just for our theological understanding of who Christ is, but because of the implication here. The implication here is if we don't do homage to the Son, if we don't kiss the Son, if we don't bow down to the Son and submit ourselves to the Son, then there's no hope of blessing, there's no refuge for us to seek. Ultimately, we have disobeyed the Scriptures that we are reading. See, that ultimately, here's the, the big idea, right? When we read the text, and we meditate upon it, and we're a scribe of it, and we're constantly allowing it to filter through our mind and our heart and throughout our life, it will lead us to one and only one place, namely a confrontation with the Son of God, and ultimately our choice of whether we're going to believe in Him or reject Him. If we reject Him, we we have perishing coming. If we embrace Him, if we submit to Him, if we believe in Him, then ultimately we have what Psalm 1 promises, delight and joy and the Lord knowing us and having this intimate relationship with, and we have the privilege of worship, and we become wise, and all of this works together. So Psalm 1 says that ultimately our responsibility is to just allow ourselves to be exposed to the text over and over and over again, prolonged exposure to the text. Because in doing that, that will ultimately allow us to understand and comprehend what it means to find our refuge in the Son. Um, in the Christmas spirit, then, when I, when I think about Psalm 2, um, my mind drifts uh, to a scene from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, you've probably seen the movies. Hopefully you've read the book. I'm counting on most of you here having read the book. Uh, just a little bit that I know about you, okay? Um, in the last few years, of course, the, the works of C.S. Lewis have had seen to enjoy some type of revival if for no other reason, because they started making movies out of, out of some of his works, right? Um, multiple movies from the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, children of this generation are being exposed through movies. Unfortunately, they need to read the books, right? So the, certainly the most familiar of these books is, uh, was the one that was first written. Not the first in the story, but the one that was first written, namely Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe. Um, and although many would, of course, know the tale because of the 2005 movie, um, reading the book actually offers some different contrast, and in that sense, a little bit more uh, kind of understanding of what uh, Lewis was trying to teach. For example, uh, one would be uh, one one place where the movie changes or doesn't actually depict what's in the book uh, is informative because it's the confrontation between Aslan and the White Witch um, when she accuses Edmund of being a traitor to Aslan. Um, having made their agreement, which of course we later find out meant that Aslan would die, right? The witch asked this, 
uh, and this is not in the movie, but so she asked, but how do I know this promise will be kept uh, when they make this agreement? Well, what we don't see in the movie is this kind of classic response. Um, it's actually a roar. I'm not going to try to roar. Um, but uh, he says, Aslan roared, half rising from his throne, and his great mouth opened wider and wider, and the roar grew louder and louder. And the witch, after staring for a moment with her lips wide apart, picked up her skirts and fairly ran for her life. Not quite the way it was in the movie, but that's a little bit more depicting of the intimidation factor that was there. Another one of the scenes, and here's where I wanted to bring us. Another one of the scenes from the book that was a little different than the movie and in some sense kind of uh, removed is the interchange between the four children, uh, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, and Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. Um, After having dinner at the Beaver's house, uh, a discussion ensues about Mr. Tumnus, who was taken to the White Witch's house, of course. The boy Peter, eager to run and save him, is told that it was no good for him to try, but rather Aslan was on the move. Aslan was on the move. Having not known who Aslan was, the kids had questions, of course. And here's how the dialogue goes. Is, is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan, I, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion, as would I. Um, that, that you will, dearie, and, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you know what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Of course he isn't safe, but he's good, and he's the king. So it's fitting, I think, that, that when Lewis is, is, is writing about Aslan in this made-up world to kind of teach some of the things that we're talking about this morning, uh, that he adopts the lion imagery for Aslan. After all, this one that we're reading about in Psalm 2, who comes in the, during the time that we celebrate in Advent, as we read this morning in Luke 1, is ultimately the one who comes as the Lion of Judah from Genesis 49. The son of the emperor beyond the sea, namely Aslan in the, in the book, and the one who created Narnia by the word of his mouth is it's his son. And he's depicting for us figuratively what we learn about the true king, namely Jesus Christ, in the text of Scripture. It's not just fitting because the image of a lion is often used as a symbol of strength, but ultimately because Scripture uses it to describe who this king is. And so we respond to him, not because he's just safe, but he's good. He's the king that can come and shatter those who are his enemies, according to Psalm 2. But we're invited to come and seek refuge in the shadow of his wing like Ruth did. Well, ultimately, as we think about these two psalms together, the kind of the general takeaway is is very profound and very simple. Is that the reason that we meditate upon Scripture is because it leads us to wisdom. But the wisdom that it leads us to is always focused in on one person, namely the Son. Because without the message about the Son, who came as a man, 
to die on the cross, to be raised from the dead, there's no salvation. There is no salvation in any other except this one person, namely Jesus Christ. So ultimately, as we seek towards maturity, wisdom is found only in this consistent intake of Scripture. But it's not just the this the bare reading of it, but it's actually this Scripture falling upon a heart that's compelled to believe its message. And its message is about the sun. As a compass always functions to point us to the north, so those who read the Psalter, who read the rest of Scripture, who, who read the canon as we have it, has a singular focus. And it's to lead us to the sun. But it demands, a, it, it demands this response by us. So I thought that, uh, to just kind of give us a, a takeaway here, on the cusp of a new year, I thought maybe, what are some things that we might consider as implications of all of this? Um, we've kind of covered a lot of material here, but uh, let's just think of it. Let me just kind of put it around four or five kind of statements or ideas that we can take away. Um, a successful year. So if you, as you look towards uh, 2019, a successful year one that receives God's blessing, is not going to be gauged by um, the circumstances that you go through. A successful year is not going to be marked by, of course, how much money or material possessions we have or, um, or, or the circumstances or the illnesses or the deaths or whatever God has for us in 2019. According to these texts, a successful year is going to be gauged by how textual we are. Not only does reading the text have this blessing in its own right, but ultimately it guides us towards wisdom-prompted success in our life. So no matter what our circumstances are, no matter what we go through, good or bad, ultimately blessing is promised to those who have a textual focus in their life because ultimately that text is leading them to find refuge not in themselves or their circumstances or in this world, but in one, namely in the Son. So number two, maturity then comes as part of this long walk in the same direction. Um, that, differs, that differs distinctly from the path that the world tells us to trod. The way of the righteous includes distinct thinking, distinct values, including what we worship, what we find value in. Such maturity, of course, comes over time. It's, a, it's a, again, a long walk in the same direction. Perhaps a way to evaluate this for us, if we're trying to evaluate, well, am I, am I doing that right? Am I, am I walking in the right direction? Is to perhaps sit and think about the, the things in life that I've valued over this past year. And what are the things I'm looking to place value on in the next year? So looking forward, resolutions might be best for this next year, if you choose to do that type of thing. Those best resolutions might be those that focus on the spiritual and the eternal rather than the superficial. For some ideas, perhaps I'll give you a suggestion, is to read Jonathan Edwards and his resolutions that he has put forward. But remember, there are no quick fixes for this. No quick fixes for maturity. It takes time, and it takes patience, and it takes a consistent life spent uh, just pouring over the text of Scripture wherein the wisdom of God is found. But it also takes patience. 
not only for ourselves, but for those around us. Don't expect your children or your spouse to automatically get it. To sin once, be corrected, and have it down. It's a life spent walking in the same direction and correcting and making course changes along the way. And so we do well to be patient with ourselves, but especially with those around us, whether it's in the church, whether it's in our family, whether it's with our neighbors, right? Number three, just to kind of another thought, is to continue to meditate on the gospel. Remember, that's where these two psalms take us. It takes us from meditating upon the text to ultimately the message of that text focusing around the, the truth of the Son. So to continue to meditate on the gospel, rehearse its beauty over and over again, sing of it, learn to appreciate the, the profundity of the gospel, preach the gospel of the Son constantly to your own heart. And as a result, this will, number four, lead us to have a renewed focus on worship. As you remember, the response of chapter 2 is to worship the Lord by doing homage to the Son. Have a renewed focus on worship in our life. The proper posture of the one who meditates upon the text is ultimately the one who submits to the Son in worship. Bowing the knee in all aspects of our life, cultivating this lifestyle of humble service and humble obedience. And this leads to kind of the fifth one, kind of based on the text here is to commit to seeking refuge in the Son. Now, kind of what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, in some ways, the rest of the book of Psalms is going to pattern what that looks like. Over and over again, it's going to come back to this idea of finding refuge in the Lord. So we, we find on the pages of the book of Psalms kind of how to do this in all, ver- all the various ways that life kind of chews us up and spits us out. We see David finding refuge in the Lord even when his enemies are trying to kill him. We find him finding refuge and rejoicing in the Lord when God gives him salvation and deliverance, when he forgives his sins in Psalm 51. So the pattern of what it looks like is is in the Psalms. But if you remember, Jesus said something very similar to this. In Matthew 11, Jesus says this, Come to me, what, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will do what? I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He's inviting us to come find refuge in who He is and how He cares for us. Again, the writer of Hebrews is going to talk about this when he says that there remains this this rest for the people of God. And so we should be diligent to to enter that rest, that invitation by the Son to come and find rest in Him. That's what we see here in the book of Psalms. It's already encouraging us to not only kiss Him in the sense of uh, submitting ourselves down to Him, but also He invites us to take refuge because He is safe, because He is good, and we find salvation for our souls within His arms. Can I pray for us? Our God, we are thankful for uh, the message of the book of Psalms, particularly Psalms 1 and 2 today. And God, as we are looking forward to this next year, I I pray that you will, um, through your Spirit, give us strength to prioritize the reading and the meditation upon the Word of God, because we recognize that it leads us to the Son. And so as a result, we 
desire to, uh, to believe in Him. We desire to follow Him. And God, even when we are struggling to believe, I pray that You will help our unbelief. So we trust You, and we're thankful for the, the rest that we can find in our Savior. And so in that regard, we, we give You praise and honor, and we pray that You'll bless our afternoons in Christ's name. Amen. in prayer, I was just thinking of, again, one of the things that we think about when we come here, the blessings 